Welcome to Love Some Familiar, the podcast that got annoyed when Nicky wasn't in the finale of Lost. Well, actually, that's the least of my problems with the finale of Lost, but that's something for another time. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to are podcasters Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge. Lisa, Andrew, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, we do a thing called Round the Archives, and we're currently up to... Episode 17. That's right. Yes. And we're on SoundCloud iTunes, and I think we're now on Player FM, Player FM and we didn't yeah. even know we were no, on we that. No, we didn't know, we just got accident. <laughs> we, we came across it the other day, and right. it's about um, archive TV, really, it isn't is. it? Yes, and um, we sort yes. of do everything from about the 50s to the 90s-ish. Yeah, yeah. 80s, 90s-ish. Yeah, yes. so it's sort yeah. of comedy, drama, variety, documentary, Yeah. anything under the sun, really, that yeah. we like. Yeah, we have a cut-off point for about sort of 1995-ish, really, don't yeah, we, so... Yeah. Okay, well, your first choice is definitely not from 1995, because I remember watching this when I was very, very young, and it was a programme that for years nobody believed me about either. So let's just hear the theme music from it. Big John has a problem, as you can plainly see. One minute he's 40, the next he's 33. Big John keeps a-changing before your very eyes. He's 25 and then 19, then 12 years old in size. Big John, little John, what a way to grow. Big John, little John, grew from high to low. Big John found the fountain of youth, he drank a little drink. And that magic water is the thing that made him shrink. Now, even when he's little John, he never knows just when. Zap, he'll change and rearrange, and he's Big John again. Okay, well, obviously, I know what that is, but Andrew, what was that? That was Big John, Little John, which is a show I can remember from 1977 it was shown in america in 76 but we got it over here a year later but i guess we have to explain what it is it was a comedy series it is funny in on occasion i have to say (laughs) (laughs) about a sort of 40 year old science teacher he he goes on holiday and he finds the fountain of youth in florida like you do (laughs) apparently this was actually based on an old legend there was some Spanish explorer who was supposed to have looked for this. And as the theme tune says, he drank a little drink. Then he suddenly finds that he's, he regresses to a 12-year-old boy, usually at the most inconvenient times. Of course. <laughs> when he's at school or yeah. doing other things. So the, the older version of him is Herb Edelman's playing yes. the part, isn't he? Yes. Now, Lisa, you, you recognised him, didn't I, you? I did. I did. I went, oh, that's Stan from the Golden Girls. Oh, it, of course it is. You see, I just always thought, oh, he was a bloke who looked a bit like Phil Silvers, but I <laughs> yeah. never realised that. You're absolutely right. And he's got a huge career as well. I think he's he was in sort of practically every American adventure series and crime series and everything. Yes, I mean, we did look through his list, and it is yeah. quite long, it's actually. It's quite a long list. Yeah. But the younger version of him is played by Robbie Rist, who's ex of i think the brady bunch yes. towards the end he yeah. was i think oliver or something oh yes. when it when it jumped the shark officially yes basically yeah. <laughs> but the the show's produced by a guy with a brilliant name of sherwood schwartz who also worked on the brady bunch and gilligan's island 
I mean, it was one of those shows that you were almost a bit reluctant to go back to because you thought, is it actually going to be any good or not? I mean, so many of these things you go back to and think, blimey, we were easily pleased as kids, weren't we? But I will give it the high praise of it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. (laughs) Lisa, you said that you were quite impressed with the uh, performance of the younger version yes, of him, the, weren't you? Um, Robbie Wrist, did you say That's his name? Right, yes. Yeah, he's, he, he's probably got the hardest job of all because mm. he has to do all the stuff that Herbie Edelman has to do, but he has to do it as a 12-year-old boy. Mm. And, and he's got, of course, he's got the wife yes. and he's got a 14-year-old he's got a son, son as well. taller than him. Yes. yes. This sort of stuff is sort of partially covered in films like Big, isn't it? Yeah. The one we watched the other day, they were... Mm rehearsing peter pan weren't they and both versions of john end up playing parts in the play they're supposed to be captain hook and peter pan (laughs) and you think how is this going to work and of course it isn't of course it doesn't there was one where he sort of he comes up with an idea to try and reverse this process he sort of tries diluting the water and taking it again and then somebody turns up with a baby and you you have this quite clever sort of almost like farce situation where his wife thinks he's actually turned into a, into the baby. So I thought, are they actually going to do it? And, and the final shot's going to be him in a nappy or something. But thankfully, they don't even attempt to go down that route at all. So. Well, I'm not surprised, and they only lasted for 13 episodes, because they were clearly running out of things that they could do with the format by that. I mean, you mentioned things like Big. You know, obviously, that's just 90 minutes, and vice versa. The book is just one story, one book. So... How on earth they thought they could sustain it for more than one series? I really don't know. I mean, they do use the transformation scene an awful lot. Because you've got, is it about three intermediate people playing John? No, it's two. Because the first shot is her bleeding one with a wig. And there's then there's some younger people. And you yeah. said one of them's eyes are wrong. Yeah, one of them's got, the eyes are too big. So it doesn't quite line <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah, he, with... he looks like Andy Corf. Dreadfully surprised. Mm. And I am surprised any of the actors can see anything. Because they've obviously got a really bright light shining in their eyes because <laughs> you can see it reflected in their pupils but they've got sort of like coloured lights around yeah. and they've made some sort of effort and yeah. uh, I think the episode we saw the other day they used that scene about four or five yes. times <laughs> in, in one lot. episode so yeah. clearly they got they got their money's worth well that's I mean you say it's one of those series you dreaded revisiting i really like that with it because my memory of it is what i actually do remember of it which isn't very much is finding it incredibly funny and there have been so many things like that where i mean with big john little john there was the extra thing that was exotic it was american and you know we didn't do that sort of thing over here which made it even funnier but there have been so many things similar things around that time that when they've gone back and watched them again particularly do you remember don and pete it was a spin-off from Crackerjack. It was Don McLean and Peter Glaze doing sort of silent slapstick comedy, which I remember. I remember people running in from the street to watch when it was on. And I watched one of them recently, and I just my head was in my hands. It was so slow and unfunny, and I dread Big John, Little John being like that. I've refused to go back to things like Grandad, haven't I? Because <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> even as a kid, I remember thinking, oh no, the audience are laughing far too much. Well... We're now moving on to your second choice, which is a series that I really hope people don't laugh at in retrospect. JC, we've got two minutes. Hello. How's the Loire? Wonderful, but I'm eating. I know you won't believe this, but I'm in the loo of a Chinese brothel looking at a homemade time bomb. You, I believe, Cornelius. Help. 
If you can't run, here's what you do. First, find the detonator or blasting cap. Should be about two inches long, made of bronze or aluminium. Got it. Now, isolate the conductor wires leading to the trigger device, okay? These should be yellow wires, but not necessarily yellow. No, they're not. Take your time. Isolate them and cut them. Nail clippers. But don't cut the wires to the timing device. But they're red too. You don't cut them because that'd make the circuit. Okay, well, this was a series that I really, really loved at the time. I couldn't see what the problem with it was. It was one of a number of attempts to do science fiction fantasy by the BBC while Doctor Who wasn't on air. That never took off. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of them that didn't work. But this one in particular, I thought was going to be a hit and it just wasn't. So, Lisa, what was that? That would be Virtual Murder with Nicholas Clay and Kim Thompson. And what stands out for me is the incredible guest cast they got. Because you've got the likes of Richard Todd, and who was an incredibly famous film actor in the 50s. And so I remember really enjoying it at the time. But I can see perhaps where they might have changed things. Hmm. And it, also, it, it, it does have a few problems, doesn't yes, it? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it also suffers from the fact it was shown on a Friday night at half past nine, which I'm sure is, sure is not the best slot for it. We should have been in the Saturday evening sort of seven and Because I, I, assume, I assumed it was Saturday when you yeah. described it to me, along yeah. with all the other you know, semi-fantasy things sort of, they were making in the yeah, early 90s. Sort of moon and sun. Which, and bugs. And don't bugs. forget bugs. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Crime Traveller. Well, that's the big difference, I think. I think this was a real problem for Virtual Murder, is if my memory serves correctly, whereas those other three that you mentioned were all on film, and regardless of the content of the scripts, they at least look good. Wasn't Virtual Murder on video? It, you know, it's very hard to tell because we, the, the sources we've been watching are from VHS and it's not a very a VHS that's in a very good yeah, condition. Yeah, it's shonky YouTube copies, yeah, so it might, it might be. It might be, yeah. I honestly, we couldn't say that for certain because you can't tell from the quality of what we've been watching. <laughs> and I really remember them, some of them really strongly, particularly episode three, I think it is three or four, A Torch for Silverado, which is... John Pertwee in. John Pertwee as, come on, tell the listeners. As an ex-brothel keeper. <laughs> Who burns down brothels as well. That's, that's the crime he's committing. He's doing an accent as well. He's doing an accent and it's not one of his usual. <laughs> no, it's one of, his, one of the thousand voices he apparently had. That he, he always said he was radio's man of a thousand voices. And I always thought, I only really ever hear one with very <laughs> slightly different intonations. <laughs> yeah, it was quite, quite an interesting guest cast because Julian Clary was in the one about vampires, wasn't he? He was playing it really straight. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's really good. And that was a big coup as well at the time because he was up and coming. It was to get Julian Clary in and got him a lot of publicity, apparently. The yeah. Tony Robinson one's weird. Where yes, he's, the Tony um, Robinson one's very weird. He's, yes. he's, what is he, the, he claims to be the brother of Santa, of Santa Claus, Claus at one point. What's the plot of that? Um, I've forgotten. He found some skeletons. Some skeletons. Some skeletons. <laughs> That's but the they, official word. Yeah. But they were display skeletons. So they weren't, they were like they, the ones that they hang in sort of doctor surgeries and hospitals. And it was, it all revolved around somebody murdered his girlfriend and her lover and then hung their bodies in his cell. He was a doctor and he'd hung them in his surgery. <laughs> I mean, that, that's got Hyle Bennett in it and that's the first of his villainous roles. Although, 
I should stress it wasn't his first villainous role because he was in a film from the 60s that people try to suppress these days. All right. Which hardly anyone has ever seen, which is called Twisted Nerve. Well, it's actually a very good film where he plays a serial killer, but the problem is that he tries to pass himself off as having learning difficulties. So you can see why it's kind of hidden from view now. <laughs> but that's where that famous whistling that was in Kill Bill that's used in a lot of adverts now, that's actually his scary serial killer motif in the film. All right, okay. <laughs> Lisa, I was just going to say that you did find the two lead characters a little, what was the word you used? A bit smug, was it? A little was it? smug, yeah. Yeah, they're very into each other, mm. which is fine. But actually, mm. a lot of the episodes are very Avengersy, I think, and maybe it suffered because of that. Because mm. maybe maybe it wasn't the right time for that kind of series. No, I mean, looking at the whole production, I mean, not just the fact that it's yet another attempt to reinvent the Avengers, which there've been dozens of in the. 20 or so years since the Avengers have been on. But as well as that, it was made at BBC Pebble Mill, which I don't think made programmes for much longer after that. It was on video, as we said. And the showrunner was Brian Dagus, who worked on Barbarella. So it's a lot of real <laughs> old-school things taking their last bow with this series. It's like the last gasp of an old way of making television, trying to do new television. And it just got a bit lost i think one thing that's noticeable is that somebody's bought the new upgrade to quantel because every time they do a scene transition the uh, picture turns into something and yes. sort of wobbles off into a well, like on russ abbott's madhouse that's yes. <laughs> that's not a recommendation <laughs> isn't there one where the picture like sort of turns into a ball and lands in dora brian's glass of yes, drink glass or something of, of wine or whatever <laughs> yeah so clearly somebody's been pressing all the buttons on the control What what does this one do? Well, the picture turning into a bouncing ball is a good enough moment to move on to your next choice, which is represented by this. Right, well, that probably just sounded like a lot of rebounding, really, but it was actually something that I remember we never had. It was always relatives had it, or children down the road had it, and I'm sure it's the same story for a lot of people. Andrew, what was that? That was Cascade from Matchbox, which was one of those insanely complex games you got in the 70s, where the construction time far outweighed the playing time, I think it's true, true to say. You open the box and there's all these sort of plastic bits and pieces that you have to assemble. There's a sort of vertical screw mechanism, a load of ball bearings, three drums, plastic drums with rubber surfaces and a sort of square thing that you put at the other end. And the idea is that the ball bearings go up the screw mechanism, wait at the top, you press a button, release them. They land on the first drum, bounce off, land on the second drum, bounce off, land on the third drum, bounce off, land in the scoring area. And you add up your score and you can sort of release the balls and they'll travel back on a sort of plastic chute back to the screw mechanism where the process repeats until you've lost all the balls. Because <laughs> the problem with this game is that as soon as the balls hit the first drum, they tend to go in every direction apart from the one they were meant to. I mean, it's a bit it's a bit like the mouse trap game, isn't it? <laughs> that you'd spend all the time setting it up and then it just wouldn't work. So, yes, there are there are some videos of uh, of people attempting to play this on youtube and 
I think you start off with about 20 ball bearings and you're, you're lucky if three of them go in sort of the, the thing they're supposed to and the rest of them just like disappear in the house. Yeah, I'd imagine that probably you didn't have the full complement of ball bearings for very long. It probably became unplayable pretty quickly unless you had a dad that knew where the hardware store was. It came out in 72. I would have had it a few years later. But it was one of those games where you got one of those proper 70s batteries, big HP2 1.5 volt things, and you'd leave the battery in there. You'd have played it at Christmas, maybe, and maybe next year you'd get it out of the box. And then you'd find that the, the battery had rusted itself into, into oh, position. Oh, that was always... That's something that seems to have disappeared into history, but that was always the fear with battery-operated toys, that there would be leakage. Yes, and, and you'd have to sort of try and prise it out with a knife, and the, the, the horrible sort of rust... And I'm sure it was a self-health and safety hazard, you know, after a year. I mean, the videos I've seen... People have sort of attempted to repair the rubber drums with all sorts of, sort of balloon pieces and things like that. So I think it's one of those games that as, as, so, as soon as any component of it failed, that was it. You had no hope of ever playing it again properly. And it was hard enough, you know, as soon as you got it out of the box. I was going to ask if it was the sort of game that now goes for a fortune on eBay. But it sounds though like there might be none in sellable condition. I did notice there are a couple for about sort of 20 quid. But I don't know, again, how complete these are. You can find a, somebody has uploaded a sort of scan of the uh, instructions. Just a lo- lovely quote from the end of it. It's baffling, it's fascinating, it's soothing, it's cascade. It's there are many... soothing! <laughs> yes, well, exactly. It didn't look very soothing to me, I'm afraid. <laughs> there are many other games you can think of to play with your cascade, apparently. Well, I can't think of any other games. Of maybe setting light to it, I really don't know. Well, I have thought of one other game you could play with it, which is potentially you could get, say, I don't know, Star Wars figures or Fisher-Price Adventure people or something. Try playing Total Wipeout with it by bouncing them off the drums. That's all I can come up with. And that wouldn't have been relevant back in the 70s as well. Were there any other games where you felt that the ratio of effort required to put them together really outweighed the actual fun that you derived? Yes, Super Flight Deck. I think it was meant to be some sort of aircraft carrier or something. And you'd have this plastic jet fighter aeroplane thing. You'd sort of attach a long line sort of across the room and you sort of launch this thing from a sort of joystick and this aeroplane would zoom off across the room. And the idea was it reached the end of the wire, would turn around and come back again. And that was it. There was nothing else you could do with that whole setup. Well, did you ever see the Just William game? You know, there was a, a series of Just William in, I think, about 1979, 1980. And to this day, I still cannot believe it existed. You had to construct a huge cardboard replica of the Brown's house. And it looked like it was going to be really exciting. It had your little cardboard chairs in it. There was a piano that jutted out from the wall. All that happened was you moved your William round the house and picked up various cards indicating naughty things that he should do. There was no excitement to it when you actually played it. Okay, well, from one fictional schoolboy to another who I'm fairly certain wouldn't have inspired the board game. Of all the pieces of furniture in the Brewster house, Bobby Brewster is fondest of the cuckoo clock which hangs on the dining room wall. This clock has a little platform in front, and every quarter of an hour a tiny door opens and out pops a cuckoo. If the time is a quarter past the hour, the cuckoo says, cuckoo, and pops straight back into its house again. 
At half past, it cuckoos twice. At a quarter to three times. And every hour, it sings the longest song of all. Cuckoo, 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 cuckoo. And then home it goes. Ever since Bobby Brewster can remember, he's been fascinated by this clock. Right, well, that frightfully well-spoken gentleman was once a really familiar voice to... Well, actually, we'll explain that in a minute. Lisa, what was that? Well, that was H.E. Todd, and he was reading one of, the, one of the Bobby Brewster stories, of which he wrote many, starting in, as far as we can tell, the 40s, and going right up until 1988. He came to my either primary or junior school. I think possibly when I was about seven or eight, so that would be sort of 1979, 1980. And he probably read one of his stories, and I certainly had a copy of Bobby Brewster's First Fun, and he signed it for me. And I, alas, I don't have that copy anymore. And yeah, it's about, I guess he's about seven years old, the little boy, Bobby Brewster. And he has lots of adventures and lots of extraordinary things happen to him. And the one that I really remember is it's called Bobby Brewster's wristwatch. And it's his birthday. And he has his birthday party again. And he finds out it's not as much fun as oh, well, he can around. Oh, he sort of travels back in time, you right? mean? Yeah, it's at the time it goes back and he has his party again he gets all his presents again he has all the food again but it's disappointing the second time around because he knows what all the presents are he knows what games they're going to play and who's going to win because he can't change anything and he feels sick because he's had too much to eat <laughs> too many sardines he likes sardines and he has too many sardines so but yeah he's a he's a, he's a frightfully well brought up little middle class child he said he can't work out why there's a spoon on the lawn because they haven't had tea on the lawn for simply ages and it's like who has tea on the lawn we barely even have a lawn i was going to say his birthday sounded like a really really posh version of groundhog day Yes, it is. It really is. It's... Is there one about a clock or something? Yeah, a cuckoo clock. He's in the dining room and he's reading a book and he loves the cuckoo clock. He's fascinated by the cuckoo clock. And every time his friends come over, this shows what a riot he is. He gets his father to wind the cuckoo clock up, <laughs> which you do by pulling the pendulum. But he's in the dining room this particular time and he looks up at the cuckoo clock and the cuckoo winks at him like, he, like they do. So he winks at the cuckoo and eventually he ends up going into the cuckoo clock and the cuckoo clock's got, the cuckoo rather, has got a little room in there and he's got a little sofa and a fire and he has tea. But because the cuckoo has to cuckoo every quarter of an hour all through the day and night, he's tired. So basically Bobby Brewster cuckoos for him for a little while <laughs> so he can have a sleep. So yeah, there's one about that. There's one about he gets some new shoes and every pair of shoes he gets, something different happens. And I really remember that one as well. I was going to say, it sounds like H.E. Todd, although Bobby Brewster is a, he's a little bit of a middle-class child, it really sounds like he wanted to bring stories to children everywhere, because as I say, he went into schools all in this country, he went into schools in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and Hong Kong, he's done stuff for the BBC, he was on Play School. Jack and Ori. And Jack and Ori, yeah. read his stories on Jack and Ori, and didn't you say he had a story, They. BT did a story at bedtime that you could phone well, up. that's the main reason that I remember Bobby Brewster was that we were very occasionally allowed to phone up and hear Busby telling a bedtime story. The kind of thing where there were childhood pranks where there'd be two of us listening and my more irreverent sister would pick up the other extension and start swearing at Busby and that sort of thing. But I remember occasionally we'd be like, oh, it's not Busby, it's that boring boy again. I belatedly apologise to H.E. Todd and anyone that's got anything to do with him for taking that attitude to his most famous creation, but 
We wanted Busby. I mean, the first line of um, the first story in this book, it just says, Bobby Brewster is an, is an ordinary small boy with a jolly face and a nose like a button. Well, it's got four holes in it. Well, I don't know what that means. How can he have a nose like a button? <laughs> is it flat? Is it round? Well, what, what? Did the, what does he look like in the drawing? Well, there are drawings. Like a, he looks like a normal boy with a nose. <laughs> doesn't look like a burn at all it took me years literally years and years to work out who had written these stories and the only way i found it out in the end was just to type lists of, of children's authors into wikipedia and go through it until i recognized it because mm. i had it in my head that it was some sort of norwegian author for some reason <laughs> it's just weird the way your brain works you think you're the move-ins or possibly something? yeah yeah, I don't think I've ever read any of the Moomin stories, but... Well, there are a lot of children's books that were everywhere at one point that sort of disappeared now. I mean, one that I particularly remember that somebody has picked for a future edition, actually, so we'll be going into that a lot more. It's the My Naughty Little Sister books, which originally were from... I think they were from Listen With Mother originally, but I remember them being constantly read out in school. Yet, until recently, there was nothing even on the entire internet about, but they were popular at one point and disappeared there was other books like there's something called the bog whoppet which i remember being read out on jackanory well i think i think it's just you read these books and you enjoy them when you're a child but most of those books are relevant to a certain generation of children and then they have no kind of cultural currency beyond that point so people forget about them and i assume that's what's happened with bobby brewster really well i didn't know it at all no it completely passed me by no. and you know we're only four years apart yes um so yeah. n- didn't mean a thing to me when you said it no but i honestly think had he not come to my school and i have no actual memory of meeting him mm. all i know is that he came to my school and i had a book and he'd signed it and i can vaguely picture what his signature looked like well we're not done with outmoded children's literature yet because i've no idea at the moment but i'm going to use a clip here so let's just see what happens down at beaconsfield live two small girls that other children may well envy Gillian and imogen don't have to wait for the next enid blyton book to appear in the shops they can read it as it comes off the typewriter for their mother mrs daryl waters is enid blyton every day when she's working on a book she rattles out about six thousand words in addition, there are always proofs to be read and letters from young fans to be attended to. It's a full-time job being as successful as she is, what with stories, articles and books. Sometimes Gillian and Imogen have to insist that she must relax and play a game with them so that she doesn't overwork. Father, a distinguished surgeon of one of London's big hospitals, joins in too. But they have to be quick to say snap before mother. OK, well, there's still no idea what I used there, so I'm just going to come straight out with this. Andrew, what was that? Mr Pink Whistle. which already sounds rude (laughs) i I have specifically chosen the book mr pink whistle interferes it's by enid blyton there are a number of mr pink whistle books now i don't really want to go down the um the sort of captain pugwash just just have a laugh at the innuendo thing and as of course we all know the captain pugwash thing is a urban myth anyway but mr pink whistle is well, he's described as sort of half human, half brownie, but I'd also say he's half vigilante as well, <laughs> because he goes around, as the book implies, interfering. So he'll see situations he doesn't approve of and stick his oar in, basically. But he can turn himself invisible. He'll often take a dislike to people just from their appearance. From On the first page... What a nasty-looking fellow, thought Mr. Pink Whistle. What a toothy smile and what horrid little eyes so close together. This is Tom Twisty, 
but he doesn't like the look of. There's also a Mr. Smarmy later on in the book. <laughs> Don't judge somebody just based on their name, but in in this situation, uh, he definitely does. One of the worst ones for sort of double meaning these days is there's a boy called Big Jim who's a bit of a bully. And Mr. Pink Whistle makes himself invisible, goes in the boy's bedroom, pulls his hair, tells him to uh, kneel down and blow on his marble until it swells up. He wants to turn his marble into his into a balloon because he's been popping balloons of little girls. But there, there's this, there's this uh, lovely line of uh, Big Jim had to blow. How he blew? He didn't want to. But he was really afraid of the person he couldn't see, but could only hear and feel. Unfortunate phrasing, I think, is the best way to put it. But, but as, a, as a kid, he's probably a hero character because he, like, sort of saves kids that are sort of downtrodden. But going back to it, I'm thinking, who the hell do you think you are? Just, <laughs> you know, wh- where's the police? Where's the parents in this situation? Just, just sort of breaking into people's houses. And doing all this stuff. There's also there's also the one about the billy goat and the stockings, which I have to read out. Mr. Pink Whistle hadn't nearly finished. When he did a thing, he did it really thoroughly. He stripped off the boy's stockings next, made the billy goat stand still, and then slipped them onto each leg. The goat was rather pleased. Okay, that to me sounds like when in something like Red Dwarf, when they try to do a joke about having seen a porn film. It sounds nothing like any real porn film, but it sounds like something like that. Well, that, that that's the thing. I mean, yes, obviously I'm picking bits and pieces out at, out at random here, but um, yeah, going going back to it, I know it's just our dirty minds now, and I know it is, and I know that that's not the original intention of any of this. But Lisa, you, you came up with an interesting... We suddenly realised that um, it was part of a bigger fictional universe which always sort of appeals to me yes um that you got who is it silky silky and Moonface and the saucepan man and mrs washalot who all turn up in the magic faraway tree yes. isn't it yeah well it starts up they start off in the enchanted wood then it goes on to the magic faraway tree and then there's another one you can't remember but i used to love those books when i was a child because mm. it was really exciting because obviously there was a tree and you went up the tree and there was a different land at the top of the tree and you had, they had different adventures uh, on different lands. Some lands were nice and some, some lands were not so nice. Yeah. And they also had these really nice sounding sort of sweets and cakes, you know, um, pop cakes that when you eat them, fresh honey in your mouth and all this sort of thing. Because I, I've, I've actually got a copy of the Magic Faraway Tree, which I, it is a newer version of it. I'm a little bit cross that I didn't look for an older version because they've changed all the names in it. Yeah. Because obviously modern children are oh, yes, unca- yeah. incapable of seeing the name Fanny without laughing. They've changed it to Franny. Yes, I'm just looking at the list on the back of the book. And uh, Mr. Pink Whistle's party is number 29 in this sort of series of books. Far away, tr- Magic Faraway tree-, tree is number 31. So All they're right. very close yes, together. I don't yeah. know about sort of publication dates and no. things like that. But it's interesting that those two sort of... Yeah. Things are very close together. So if you, it's one of those things. The more of these books that you read, the bigger a universe it would sort of it would build up. Well, you see, I tried to avoid reading any of them, but there was a, it wasn't the usual reason you think. It wasn't because I was thinking, oh, you know, sappy sissy literature about fairies for girls or whatever. It was because. We had a number that belonged to my older sisters of Enid Blyton books. One of them was something like the 18th Enid Blyton book of Tales of Pixie Folk or something. And on the cover, it had a lot of kind of pixie-type characters, one of whom looked exactly facially 
like the clown from the start and end of Camberwick Green, who I was terrified of. And I remember seeing that and thinking, ah, I know what you're up to. You don't fool me, mate. Well, I mean, I remember reading a lot of the Noddy books. To be honest, Noddy's not very nice in some of these because there's a crab that bites his toe and Noddy threatens to cook the crab and eat him. It's not all as nice as you might think, actually. Well, belligerent sea life brings us nicely round to your last choice, which I really, really wish I had had this. likely as this lisa what was that it was the jaws game which is literally a shark with its mouth propped open that you get a little hook it's like a sort of crochet hook or a dentist hook or something and you reach into the shark's mouth to pull out bits and pieces of the things you swallowed so things like a skull in some versions a fish skeleton uh, there's a gun, which apparently disappeared quite quickly. <laughs> That's not suitable for children. But it was held up by an elastic band. And I was quite frankly terrified of it. Because you never knew when the shark's mouth was going to sh- snap shut. And if your hand was in the way, it hurt. <laughs> it would actually hurt. It would actually hurt, because its teeth were quite sharp. But yeah, and I had no idea why on earth my parents thought it was a suitable game for me. <laughs> Because obviously the film comes out in 75 and the game comes out around the same time, if not a year or two later. Now, I was only three in 1975, so I obviously didn't have it then. And you didn't go and see the film. I didn't go and see the film. And I I get the idea that it got to about 1980 and somebody somewhere was selling it cheap. And they thought, oh, yeah, that'll do as a Christmas present. And yeah, and I was terrified of it. It scared the hell out of me when it snapped shut. (laughs) A bit like Buckaroo. I was, I think I had Buckaroo as well, and I was quite scared of Buckaroo because <laughs> you never knew when it was going to flip and everything would fly everywhere. Well, yeah, I just don't get it at all because, I mean, obviously, you know, Jaws were huge for knowing them, but it's quite an unpleasant film, and it's one that I remember. Kids used to be frightened of seeing it listed in the TV Times. So why would any of them have wanted a game featuring an aquatic creature that could eat you? And there's also the thing of what we were saying earlier about Cascade. There was also the thing of, that, as I said, the mouth was held open by an elastic band. The moment the elastic band perished, that was it. You couldn't really replace the elastic band. So once the moment the elastic band went, you couldn't play the game anymore. Or you lost the hook. You know, if you lost the hook, you're putting your hand in there. <laughs> so Just up to the wrist. Just up to the fine, wrist, yeah. you know. And it seemed to me at the time to be quite scary. But I look at pictures of it now and think, oh, my God, it's actually quite a rubbish shark. Like the film. So, I mean, you, you, you're saying about um, kids being scared of the TV listing. I also remember when the Museum of the Moving Image, when that existed on the South Bank and they had the Doctor exhibition. So I went into the ladies' toilet and they were playing the Jaws music. I have never gone to the toilet so quickly in the whole <laughs> of my life. Well, did you know there was a disco version of the Jaws theme? I know there were, there were disco versions of every theme in the 70s. But really, honestly, there's a disco version of Jaws. So I can't imagine many people at Studio 54 sort of getting on down to that. Really. I, 
I still have trouble watching Jaws because I still jump out of my skin every time the damn shark jumps up at somebody. Yeah. And I'd hate You the, know it's coming. I know but... it's coming. I hate the bit with the dog. I've read the book and there's the bit in the, the thing about the, the dog getting eaten. I hate that. It actually, in the book, it goes into the mind of the person as they are being eaten. Oh, nice. Really bizarre. You don't get like a boy or a dog in the actual game, then, no, do you? No. <laughs> I read it once when I was doing work experience at an old people's home when I was sitting with somebody and I read quite but a sizable chunk. But you read Jaws to them? Yeah, no, not to them. I was right. just sitting with them while they worked very well. And I've read it a bit since and it's really not not very nice book no. at all. Not no. at all. And I know I think Peter Benchley was actually quite sorry he'd written it because a lot of cruelty to sharks happened after the film no. and after the no. book. No. And he was he became a patron of a shark charity or something to... to Give sharks a better name because they're not as bad as, as the film portrays. It was only the second most inappropriate film tie-in toy in the 70s, though, because, again, this is something not many people believe me about. There was a toy of the alien from Alien where if you <laughs> if you flipped a switch on its back, the jaws, like, snapped open and shut and had the full skull face and everything. It wasn't a collector's thing for adults that kids were bought. It was marketed by Kenner Toys in the same way they marketed the Star Wars stuff. They obviously thought it was appropriate and suitable for children, although I don't think H.R. Geiger joined a sort of alien preservation charity to atone for it, really. But my main toy, that I mean, not, not inappropriate at all, but that I sort of tie in with this, that I remember that I've never seen anywhere since, was I remember seeing on TV there was a toy of the Hulk in a cage where you pressed a bulb to inflate him and he got bigger and bigger and the cage broke open. I remember telling a kid in school about it and they said, what happens to the bits of the cage? Do they go on the floor? And even at that age, I was about four, thinking, that isn't really the relevant question here, is it? Okay, well, I I hope we have actually posed some slightly more relevant questions during the course of this. Uh, To be grateful, Lisa, Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. Bye. Procrastination Society, articles, columns and more, some previously unpublished. More details at timworthington.org.